The High Court has ruled in a major £2.3 million service charges dispute between management consultant McKinsey and its former landlord of office premises in the famous Criterion building in Piccadilly Circus. For this latest episode of On the Case, I'm speaking to Alice Hawker of Selborne Chambers, who acted along with Nicholas Trumpeter for the landlord to explain the court's decision in Criterion Buildings Limited v McKinsey & Co, Inc, United Kingdom and another and to share the lessons from the case for landlords and tenants. Thanks for joining me, Alice. Hi, thanks ever so much for having me. Uh, So I've given that briefest of overviews of the case, but can you talk us through in a little bit more detail what the facts were that led to this dispute and and what uh, the issues that arose between the parties were? Yes, of course. So in terms of the factual background, it's relatively straightforward, as you've said, The dispute emanated from McKinsey's occupation of its flagship office premises, known by their address, 1 German Street. Um, And as you said, the offices are situated in the well-known Criterion building at Piccadilly, Mm. which actually comprises three adjacent buildings with a theatre, restaurant and retail units as well. Um, McKinsey occupied 1 German Street under three consecutive leases, which were in broadly the same terms for a term of approximately 26 years. In the final years of McKinsey's occupation, a number of issues arose between the parties as to the propriety and correctness in law of certain demands for service charge payments. Ultimately, McKinsey stopped paying the full sums demanded and in 2019, McKinsey relocated. Mm-hmm. So in February 2019, Criterion, the landlord and Uh, Nick and I's client issued what was really a straightforward debt claim for sums due under the leases. And then by its defence, McKinsey raised a series of objections to the charges, which then formed the basis of the issues before the court. So what were the issues before the court? By the time the matter came on for trial, the issues between the parties had somewhat narrowed. So, for example, Quite soon before trial, McKinsey and their legal team dropped one of the main bases of their dispute, which had been a challenge to the cost of exterior works that they had originally said did not require scaffolding, but they eventually conceded that. So at trial, which was, of course, held remotely, um, the the claim was disputed on four main bases. Firstly, whether the landlord had apportioned the service charges due between the various tenants of the building in accordance with the leases. Secondly, whether the claimant was entitled to build up and maintain a sinking and or a reserve fund under the leases. Thirdly, whether works to the goods lifts were premature and or unnecessary. And fourthly, a set off point. And to determine those issues, the court heard from witnesses from each side and also two expert witnesses on lifts. And as I mentioned at the start, you you, uh, you got judgment in the case um, last week. Uh, how did the judge deal with those um, four main issues and, and what uh, what did he ultimately decide? Yeah, so his honour judge, Paul Matthews, sitting as a high court judge, held that McKinsey failed on all the points that they raised by way of defence to the claim and entered judgment for the full amount claim claimed. The most interesting issue in this judgment is the question of apportionment. But as I've said, there are three other issues. So I'll go through each of them in turn. Looking first at apportionment, this arises because the service charges due under the leases constituted a proportion of the total charges due 
amongst the various tenants within the building. McKinsey argued that what Criterion had charged as its due proportion did not comply with the leases because it was not fair, assessed on an objective standard. In particular, McKinsey complained that the percentages charged to each tenant did not accord with the floor measurements of their various different units. The judge accepted Criterion submissions that, firstly, the burden of proof was on McKinsey to establish a prima facie case that McKinsey had been charged more than a due proportion. So just pausing there, this makes perfect sense, we say, and the judge accepted, and it's a much more workable approach. If the onus was on the claimant landlord in the first instance, the landlord would have to preempt every possible challenge in order to shift the burden of proof. But instead, the courts recognise that the tenant must identify those aspects of the service charges that they dispute and raise a prima facie case in respect of those before the landlord is then required to answer those points. And secondly, the judge accepted that the decision as to how to apportion charges between tenants under the leases is a subjective rather than an objective question, albeit subject to rationality and an implied term under the case of Braganza. The judge held that McKinsey had failed to raise an issue as to rationality. And even if it was an objective standard, McKinsey had failed to raise an issue as to the objective wrongness of the decision to vary the proportions so as to take account of the voids in the Criterion Theatre. Turning to the second issue regarding sinking and reserve funds, under the lease, the landlord was permitted to include an amount which it reasonably determined was appropriate to build up and maintain a sinking fund and a reserve fund in relation to defined expenses, such as, for example, renewing and replacing lifts, plant and machinery. So the general idea is to spread those costs over the term of the lease. In short, McKinsey argued that it had been overcharged by about £1.5 million, although McKinsey did accept those costs that had actually been spent on services or works. In order to understand how these demands operated, the judge analysed the quarterly demands sent out each year by the managing agents, Orbit, together with the suite of documents sent out at the year end, including a sinking fund statement. The judge then analysed the scheme in the leases under which payments into a sinking or reserve fund were treated from the tenant's perspective as spent from the moment they were paid, meaning that subsequent disbursements from those funds were of no consequence to McKinsey as the tenant. The relevant fund was subject to a trust to be spent on certain kinds of expenditure, and thus there was no basis, contractually or otherwise, for criterion to return or credit a sinking or reserve fund payment at the year end, unless that primary trust failed. Turning to the third issue, the goods lift, it was more of a factual issue in which McKinsey argued that it was inappropriate to charge them for the cost of modernising or replacing two goods lifts because that work was unnecessary and premature. After reviewing the evidence and hearing from experts on each side, the judge agreed with Criterion that it was reasonable to exercise its discretion to build up a sinking fund in order to cover the cost of works to the goods lift. Because even if the lifts were operational day to day, the lack of know-how among current lift engineers and lack of genuine parts to ensure uninterrupted service meant it was better to refurbish or replace them. Finally, on the fourth issue of set-off, 
the judge agreed with Criterion that the obligation under the lease is for McKinsey to provide receipted invoices in order to establish set-off required evidence of an invoice that had been endorsed by the invoicing party, so as to acknowledge that the invoice had been paid. There is some pretty nice esoteric case law about what (laughs) receipted means, including cases about barristers' fee notes. Uh, But ultimately, it's really a common sense answer that it doesn't suffice for the paying party to stamp the invoice to say that they had been paid. Sounds reasonable. So um, it's quite unusual for a a service charge case like this um, to come to court, certainly one on, on this kind of scale. So is it more common for this type of dispute to be resolved without the need for litigation? Yes, I would agree. Generally, parties and in particular commercial landlords and tenants prefer to resolve these disputes without resorting to litigation. Where a commercial landlord has a portfolio of properties with similarly worded leases and the particular dispute raises issues as to the interpretation of those leases, there is, of course, a risk that the court finds against the landlord, which then has wider implications across its properties, which could lead, of course, to more litigation. Equally, for a well-known commercial tenant such as McKinsey, there are potential reputational issues as well as the cost and distraction of commercial litigation. And there's always a balance between wanting to get the best possible deal and also recognising that significant management hours might be saved by reaching an early deal. I think it's probably fair to say that there is usually a window of opportunity when these issues have been raised for the parties to come together and seek to reach a commercial agreement. And that may well have the benefit for each side of certainty and finality. But that said, it may be that the parties simply cannot reach agreement. And therefore, as in this case, the matter does go to trial. It seems like the decision uh, is is good news for landlords, certainly on that key uh, issue of of apportionment of service charges. So what do you think the implications of the decision will be for landlords and tenants? And how do you think this decision will influence service charge negotiations going forward? Yeah, well, whatever side you're looking from as a tenant or a landlord, the starting point of every case will be the particular terms of the lease. Mm. So in this case, we relied upon the case of Pendra Loweth Management and North, which a decision of Martin Roger QC, the deputy president of the Lands Chamber of the Upper Tribunal. And we said that that case demonstrated the discretion afforded to landlords. But ultimately, the court held that you really have to look at the particular words of the particular lease to determine what's been agreed. However, when entering a lease of the of a building in which the service charge is apportioned between various tenants, I think it would be fair to observe that tenants should review carefully the apportionment clause and understand the landlord's methodology behind the apportionments. And equally, when calculating apportionments, I would mm-hmm. suggest that landlords should gather and re- retain evidence to demonstrate the basis upon which they've done so in order to meet any future challenges. If down the lines tenants seek to dispute that apportionment, then they will really need to interrogate their lease to see if they can find a material distinction from the wording in this case. For example, does the wording make it clear that it is not at the landlord's discretion, but solely to be determined by reference to objective criteria? 
if not, tenants will really need to focus carefully on the channels by which it can attack the decision. However, as for example, in this case, these are really quite high standards. The tenant would need to show that the decision was irrational, capricious, arbitrary or so outrageous in its defiance of reason that it can properly be categorised as perverse. The onus is on the tenant in the first instance to raise that prima facie case. So the tenant really does need to get its ducks in a row if it wants to mount a challenge on either of these bases. And in the meantime, I think this probably will encourage landlords to take a more robust stance, while of course recognising that they cannot exercise their discretion irrationally or in bad faith. That's very useful guidance. Thank you very much, Alice. Um, so this case um, involves service charges for a period uh, a few years ago, because obviously, as you mentioned, McKinsey moved offices uh, in the heady days of 2019 when <laughs> none of us had ever heard uh, of COVID-19. Um, now, obviously, we're going through a very difficult time for landlords and tenants, and, and there's an awful lot of discussion uh, about um, the, the amount of unpaid rent that is mounting up during the pandemic. But I imagine there must also be a looming problem over unpaid service charges. Uh, do, do you think that could lead to more service charge disputes heading to court in the, in the months and years ahead? Yes, as you say, rent recovery has been a really hot topic in this difficult time for landlords and tenants, both in a commercial and a res residential setting. And as set out in your interesting discussion with Alison Hardy at Ashurst, there are interesting developments anticipated concerning disputes about unpaid rent. I think Thank you for tuning in. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're absolutely right that service charge disputes are another frontier where we might see a number of developments as parties test their contractual obligations. I am really intrigued to see how this judgment is interpreted going forward, both by commercial parties and by the court. I think we probably can expect more disputes where parties seek to test the limits of their individual leases and service charge disputes are quite a fertile ground for doing so. As you say, commercial tenants are particularly stretched at the moment and looking for legitimate ways to challenge their liabilities. Um, this case is a clear signal that where the due proportion due by each tenant under a lease is to be determined by the landlord, it's a question for the landlord and the court won't interfere, save for specific circumstances. And in this case, the judge observed that where there are several tenants amongst whom the service charges divided, it was not sensible to see the question of apportionment as an objective standard, as a result of which a tenant could simply reject the decision as unfair. Thinking practically, it makes no financial difference to the landlord how the service charges are apportioned. So the judge found that the landlord can be trusted because it has no axe to grind. From a landlord's perspective, this is obviously good news at a time when they've been facing a number of hurdles to recovering sums due from tenants under the various moratoriums. And it seems to me as if this is one perhaps isolated area in which landlords can feel confident going forward. And I will certainly look forward to seeing how it plays out both in commercial negotiations and in the courts. Well, thank you very much again for joining me, Alice, and giving such a clear analysis of uh, Criterion v McKinsey. Thank you very much. You have been listening to On the Case from EG.